Hello, welcome to Convergent Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. Okay, so it is uh, February and uh, a couple of uh, months into the new year. Um, I'm sure as most people have gathered, uh, I record a bunch of episodes, sometimes all at once, sometimes depending on schedules, sometimes depending on releases. And I have uh, a recent good problem. Uh, my good problem is I can't turn down a good conversation and I have quite the, uh, folder and on my, on the cloud somewhere of many conversations I have recorded. Uh, I recorded a bunch just kind of worked out that way scheduling wise in November and early December. And I have yet to release them. <laughs> and, uh, every time I, have a conversation. I wish I could just release it, you know, the next day or whatever, because I they're usually just so good. And so I have a bunch kind of just waiting to be released. And, you know, I've been kind of doing two a week for um, a while, actually. And apparently I, I've uh, uh, just, <laughs> I don't, again, know how to turn down a good conversation. So I need to find a way to get these released. So for the next probably about two months. So rest of February and uh, March, I will be releasing three episodes a week. So you get to hear uh, more of my voice, but really more importantly, uh, more of the voices of all my wonderful guests. I really am honestly super proud and pleased with all the conversations I've had. And I'm, I'm really excited to, to, to share all of them. Just some really great people, great uh, thinkers and researchers. And uh, there's just so many, so many good conversations about a whole variety of topics. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about, about releasing them. So next couple of weeks, you'll see a lot more of me posting. Um, I'm probably going to try and hit a kind of Monday, Wednesday, Friday kind of deal. Uh, might be a little changes here and there, but uh, something along those lines. So um, don't, I want everyone to listen to all of the conversations. I assume most people will, uh, listen to ones they like and ones they're less interested in, but I, I really would encourage folks to kind of give a chance to some of the people that you may not like. Some of the episodes are a little bit shorter. I think there's a handful of episodes in here that are maybe an hour or just over an hour or so. Um, hopefully a little bit more digestible than <laughs> the long three hour plus ones I'm, I'm used to doing. Okay, so for today's episode, uh, I am talking with Benjamin Harold. Uh, ben is a journalist and author uh, who's mostly written on urban education. He has a master's in urban education from Temple University, and his work has been heavily featured in many places such as PBS NewsHour, Huffington Post, NPR, and many other outlets. He is the author of the newest book, Disillusioned, Five Families and the Unraveling of America's Suburbs. And uh, that's what we talk about in the, the conversation. Benjamin is such a wonderful person. He's so nice. Uh, I've actually, uh, he, he was doing a kind of book tour for, for this and I had a, a chance to go see him at one of the events in the area and uh, at uh have to say hey and, and support him and listen to his talk and uh, he's just he's just really really good people uh, all around 
and uh, he's he's really been doing this kind of work for a long time, and and the way in which he he wrote this book was was uh, just spectacular. We start off by talking about the five families and um, and uh, where they're at. So the book is kind of set up where it follows um, five families or five suburbs in different parts of, of the country. So it starts in the Dallas suburbs, uh, talks about, uh, I think it's an African-American family in the suburbs around Atlanta. I think it's a multi-ethnic family in uh, Evanston, Illinois. Um, I think it's uh, a black family out in Penn Hills, uh, PA, where I think he's uh, from as well. And some of the, there's, a, I think, a Hispanic uh, family, if I remember correctly, from uh, Compton. And um, so he kind of gives the, you know, it follows the story, but in each of those places, talks about kind of the unique features. So it's kind of the fast development in the Dallas suburbs in Texas, um, some of the multi-ethnic kind of uh, heritage that, uh, Evanston has in Illinois, the multiple futures uh, that are available in uh, Penn Hills, and some of the long history in the founding families uh, of Compton. So we talk about uh, culture and history in each of these places. Uh, we talk about uh, the centrality of schools in, in, in suburbs generally and then in these uh, communities. Talk about some of the cultural issues that have popped up over the past few years in regards to how it uh, matriculates into suburbia, uh, impact of uh, COVID-19 pandemic, um, the future of suburbia, and uh, many more topics. Uh, this was a little bit different for me. Uh, I don't I don't typically do these kind of uh, pieces where it's it's uh, kind of following kind of these case studies or case examples of sorts and. Um, so it was, it was a little different, a little bit challenging for me and how I thought about it and prepared about for the conversation. Uh, but I, I am so happy I did because again, Benjamin is, uh, just absolutely wonderful. He's, uh, got, I mean, he's a fantastic writer and he's got just such a powerful way of telling stories and getting at the humanity of people, um, all around the U S and, and really has a big passion for urban education. So fantastic book, highly recommend people pick it up. As always, you can find this conversation and all other conversations at Converging Dialogues at Substack.com. I'm also on YouTube. Uh, so please, uh, you know, subscribe, follow. That really means a lot. Um, I, am, I am slowly building uh, all of my, my uh, kind of followers on the Substack, and I'm, I'm really happy to see that. Um, I, I'm very hopeful that these conversations are at the very least, um, giving people different perspectives and hopefully educating in some areas from, from the guests. And so I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to see that. Uh, obviously you can contribute if you want, uh, that always helps, helps me make the podcast better. And, um, and you can, of course, uh, follow, follow me online. I'm less on there, but, uh, usually promoting the podcast. And so uh, now I bring you, uh, Benjamin Harold. I am here with Benjamin Harold. Uh, Benjamin, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'm greatly looking forward to speaking with you. Uh, great to be here, and likewise. Yeah, so you uh, you've written a, a fabulous book. Uh, I really enjoyed it. It was a it was. I almost felt like I wasn't reading. I guess it's not nonfiction. I guess it kind of is. I don't know. It's kind of like an in between. It was it was such a great uh, way in which you told like the narrative stories here. The book is called Disillusioned: Five Families and the Unraveling of America's Suburbs. Uh, and this is out through uh, Penguin. It's uh, it's really really great. 
Uh, so we're going to talk all about this. Um, but before we do, uh, tell listeners uh, just who you are uh, professionally and what you, what you currently do and write and think about. Sure. Um, so I, uh, I write about schools. I've really been exploring and researching and writing about and making media in public schools around the country for the last 15 years or so. Um, I worked as a reporter at the WHYY here in Philadelphia, covering the school districts of Philadelphia, um, and then worked for seven years at uh, Education Week covering schools nationally. And so in the process of that, you know, I got really invested in feeling like, you know, you're a journalist. You want to f- kind of get into the heart of where the problems are, kind of that space between the country's promises and its realities. And I just always kind of assumed like those stories would be out in cities or out in rural areas. And my whole kind of work was based on that until I started hearing what was happening in my hometown. And that's what kind of prompts the launching point for the book. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask about that. You kind of mentioned it in the book, but this, uh, the, the book kind of uh, deals with kind of suburbs, uh, kind of loosely across the country. And, and with that, a lot of uh, where the schools are at. And that's obviously a, a center point of many suburbs. But I guess, how did you come to write, you know, the book in this way? Uh, you you kind of choose five families. You talk about, I think it's Penn Hills, which is, I think, uh, in Pennsylvania, where, where you're from. How did you just kind of come into to, to writing it this way? Yeah, I mean, it really started for me when, uh, you know, tw- around 2015, 2016, when all of these really, really devastating headlines started coming out of my hometown, which is like an aging suburb right on the eastern edge of Pittsburgh called Penn Hills. And so like those all, out of nowhere, like the school system had $172 million debt, it was having to lay off teachers, it was cutting programs, property taxes were going up, you know, it was just a real kind of like vicious cycle happening. And so I wanted to understand why. And when I went yeah. back, it started thinking what became evident pretty quickly in Penn Hills was that all of the opportunities that my family had already gotten there a generation earlier, where a white family moved in there in the mid seventies, I spent my whole childhood there got a great education in the public school system, all of that stuff that we kind of, that went into giving us those opportunities and resources, we had never really paid for it. It had like pushed the cost of that off. And the people who lived mm-hmm. in Penn Hills now were the ones who were really paying the cost of that. Mm-hmm. So that was like a kind of a troubling thing to understand. And I wanted to know if this was just happening in my hometown, if it was unique or if it was something more broadly. So, you know, through that, I, you know, started to immerse myself in the sociology of suburbs and realized, mm-hmm. you know, there's this kind of typology of different suburban types and different stages of kind of the life cycle. And mm-hmm. so the, from there, I kind of went into picking the communities to have this kind of representative sample that would show this kind of arc of development and exclusion and then, you know, kind of passing, crossing paths and then kind of the decimation of the tax base after. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is very interesting. I feel like for a lot of people still today, and it's just something that kind of feels kind of, you know, uh, in the book as well as, there's this idea of like an American dream, right? You're going to settle down. You're going to get a house, maybe a white picket fence. Maybe not. It doesn't need to be that, but <laughs> we don't need to be that stereotype. But, you know, you settle down, you get a house, you maybe live, you know, not in a city, but just outside a city. And, you know, you, you drive a Subaru or whatever, <laughs> you know, you suburban life. And there's this kind of picture of what that looks like or, or what, you know, has been told to you or what your parents or grandparents said. And in the book, it, it's a pretty sobering uh, realization of it's not quite like that. And in many ways, it becomes uh, much more difficult. Uh, and of course, later on, we'll talk about some of the, the stuff in 2020 with uh, some of the um, you know, racial conversations around the country and, and some of the things after that. And then obviously the pandemic and really kind of takes a turn in some ways, which is really fascinating. So 
Okay, there's five families. So, so you can you can kind of just give us the broad overview if you want. You have the um, you have the Becker family in Lucas, Texas. You have the Robinson family in Gwinnett County, Georgia. Uh, the Adisana family in Evanston, Illinois. Uh, Smith family in Penn Hills, Pennsylvania, and Hernandez family in Compton, California. Um, you, you can talk about it however you want, but it's interesting because they're they're in different parts of the country. And, you know, you ever heard that saying that people say that, like, you know, United States is really like six countries in one. It's kind of, you know, sort of I got that feel of like, yeah, there, you, you have different parts. So, you know, the Midwest, the South, you know, the Northeast, you know, the West. Um, and uh, and there are also different racial makeups. There's some some mixed families in there. There's uh, black and Latin and, and white. And so you talk about how uh, for choosing these families in these regions, was it like, you know, I want to go to this region, and so let me pick a family to kind of represent that, or was it the other way? Like, this family makes sense. Oh, okay, and it's in this region. How was the way in which you went about journalistically doing this? Yeah, I tend to be kind of a big to small guy, so I was really okay. thinking about what the communities first, which communities uh-huh. would both um, kind of demonstrate this kind of arc of development and decline and how it gets racialized, and then also have, you know, kind of an interesting story in their mm-hmm. own history and operations. And then from there, it was meeting the families um, through, you know, just kind of knocking on doors and going to meetings and, and talking wow. to people. So the Beckers, um, they're an affluent white family, uh, conservative, um, both worked. Uh, when they met, they were both working as bankruptcy consultants um, and mm-hmm. ended up on the Enron project together. And so mm-hmm. that's where they kind of fell for each other, you know, kind of doing the uh, accounting there. And so they, um, you know, they're white. They're... Um, mid forties and early fifties when we meet them in the book and they were, had lived in Plano, Texas, thinking that was mm-hmm. where they were going to kind of get this, their version of the suburban dream. Um, but they were not happy with the public schools. They didn't really like the neighborhood. The demographics were changing. And so they decided they wanted to move further out. And so I met, met them when they're moving into this affluent, um, uh, kind of, um, exclusive enclave in a town called Lucas, Texas, about 30 miles north of that. They just bought their new house there. Um, the Robinsons are an African-American family uh, living in Gwinnett County uh, outside of Atlanta. You know, professional family, multiple advanced degrees, you know, tremendous support network, um, thinking they're kind of moving into, you know, a great community where they can kind of set it and forget it. And the highly regarded local schools will kind of do what they need to do. Um, and everything's going kind of pretty good until their oldest son hits middle school. And then all of this kind of conflict over discipline starts happening. Mm. That's when I met the Robinsons. Um, in Evanston, Illinois, uh, the uh, featured family is Lauren Adesina. She's a multiracial woman who is a mom who grew up in Evanston, wanted to get out of the suburbs, went to Chicago for a while. But then when she, uh, after she had her child, when she had her child, she came back home because she wanted to raise him in kind of that safe environment that she remembered. And Evanston is a very progressive place. It's a college town. Um, you know, there's a, you know, really prized, it prides itself on its uh, diversity and those kinds of things. So there's this kind of mythology of like, it was a place that's working. Um, but what we saw, you know, started right around 2018 was, um, things kind of going haywire and, um, Mm -hmm. uh, parent activists trying to, to respond to that. Um, Bethany Smith, uh, is an African American mom who uh, recently bought the house three doors down from my childhood home in Penn Hills. Um, and so we got to know each other, uh, through that and she actually contributed to the book. And then the Hernandez family in Compton, um, the, the parents were born in Mexico. Um, they're now here without the documentation. And so, you know, they kind of had this kind of push and pull tug of like, should we go back home? Should we stay here? That's kind of dragged out for quite some time, kind of almost feeling in limbo. 
uh, but they have two children now who are U.S. citizens born on U.S. soil. And, you know, their son is a gifted, curious, wonderful kid, and he's just started uh, fourth grade at Jefferson Elementary in Compton when we meet him. Hmm. Yeah, so in in all of these <clears throat> these uh, conversations, I guess is is one of these things in all in how you detail this, the stories is you know what is it that wanted to I know you I mean books take a long time to to kind of you know write and things like that <laughs> but what was it that for you <clears throat> I know you had said about the stuff with your your uh, your hometown but what was it about that as a jumping off point and then all these stories together. Now, like you're, you're not starting to write it now in 2024. You didn't start to write it in 2005. You know, you kind of started, you know, writing it when you did. I guess the just briefly, what was the kind of now picture of it? It's like, if I don't write this now, uh, you know, whatever, or what was the kind of through line of saying, this isn't important to, to tell, story to tell at this point of where we're at. And, you know, the book might come out in two or three years, but it feels very like uh, important now. Why the now piece? You know, there's this illustrative scene that actually in the book that actually comes out of my hometown, Penn Hills. And so they've had this, these revelations of this monstrous debt and all of this financial problems that have been kind of getting covered up for a long time and the infrastructure is crumbling. And, you know, there's just all of these kind of issues and challenges there. And the superintendent, when I interviewed her, you know, everyone kind of thought things were going okay until they got this like bad audit. And she's like, I started looking at this audit and there's some numbers that don't make sense. And the way she described it is like I saw a spot on the ceiling and I tried to rub it off and the whole ceiling collapsed. Mm-hmm. And so I think that is happening in individual suburbs like my hometown, which felt like a compelling story. But once I started mm-hmm. to realize that's part of a cycle where there's communities all over America who are, have already experienced that, who are going through that now, who are primed to go through it in the near future. But we don't have a kind of a common language or lens for looking at that. Um, it mm-hmm. felt like this was the time to try and do that because we have this unraveling really at hand. Mm. Yeah. And so there's this interesting kind of um, a through line, right? Is that doesn't really, I mean, it, it matters and it doesn't, but there's this kind of a, a example of you can be from different racial backgrounds, different socioeconomic class. You can be from different parts of the country, different histories, maybe different subcultures, but there's this line of, People really care about what's going on in their communities and people really care about what's going on in their schools, both uh, in terms of what education is being received and how people are being treated and, and things like that. I mean, was there was there anything that really kind of hit you in the head when you were doing this of like, wow, like all of these things are different people, different parts of the country, but this is the kind of connecting point like this is the nucleus what was that kind of one or two things for you specifically i mean the big picture it was really this sense of families who had invested so many hopes and dreams you know some of them spoken some of them just like the unspoken things yeah. we carry with us about how we see the future you know what we would hope for our what we hope for our children you know providing for them in the way that we want all of those things like have become deeply associated with the suburb and different families from different backgrounds in different parts of the country, you know, invest different variations of a theme based on that. You know, we, but we, we're all kind of putting this kind of very personal, um, emotional stuff into our relationship with the suburbs. And that relationship is fraying now. And that mm. was the thing that was really common for me. I mean, for different reasons and different um, families are having different experiences of it. But that kind of core connection that they had to their communities and all of the hopes they had for it being broken or frayed or severed. I think that is uh, the through line through all of those communities and families. Mm, yeah. 
Yeah, and it, it, there's a kind of almost like a like a barreling kind of very fast, you know, towards some of the kind of bleakness of this as we we get more present, which is uh, I haven't I haven't spent too much time thinking about it actually after I read it, so maybe we can talk about some of that. But that's very <laughs> it's, it's it's not hopeful in some ways, and so I think that hopefully there's some hope there. But uh, so so in the beginning, you talk about. Plano, Texas, and and uh, it's really interesting. I, I didn't know all of this stuff about, um, you know, there's all this, like, uh, growth in Dallas, Fort Worth area. It's obviously a big, big area and things like that in the 40s, and there's all this kind of, you know, they start to need to build out. And so it's not really until, uh, you mean, until the 80s of where, you know, Plano, Texas was like basically developed, like it's not a city that's been there for a long time. I mean, as it is today, I mean, and, um, and so there's like this massive like burst. And so when you talk about, uh, the Becker family, like they get there and then they, they, they eventually move on to to Lucas, which is 20 minutes away, 30 minutes away. Um, yeah. Talk about how we see a lot of that. I mean, I can think of areas and, you know, where I live, uh, you know, where, there's like, yeah, this is just farm country. And I can remember when there was like horses and cows there. And now it's like got a town center and everything, right? It's just like, so, and 20 years, like it's just massive growth. I felt kind of like that here. So maybe talk just a little bit about that Dallas area in Plano and, and how the suburbs were kind of created and many people going and getting pushed in those places. Yeah. I mean, if you um, look at the area north of Dallas, like Collin County area, um, you know, if you go back 200 years, it's just rolling black land prairie. You know, it's just tall uh-huh. grass and wildflowers and it's kind of gently rolling hills and it just goes on forever. And then you have these kind of small agricultural towns um, around there and um, Plano being one of them about, um, you know, just north of Dallas. And so, you know, during that time as an agricultural community, um, not particularly wealthy, you know, very, just kind of very small town. Um, mm-hmm. But at, around World War II, when the U.S. government starts investing um, tr- uh, kind of defense plants and so forth in the areas around Sunbelt cities through the South, where you start to see his family starting to move there very quick to work in the factories, to work, you know, building planes, tanks, electronics in Dallas and various cases. And so um, at the same time that that's happening, there's a, a lot of racial tension in Dallas property, proper, where um, mm-hmm. you have, you know, places that have been redlined, there's overcrowding, there's all this racial conflict with white people kind of bombing their black neighbors' homes when they try and move in. So all of this stuff has been going on for years. And that's when the kind of sub-suburbanization starts to go north. So the the highway is built um, heading north, and then these communities start developing almost like rings of a tree. Every 20, 25 years, you have another Mm. community develop one ring further out. Mm. And so Plano's in the second ring. Um, And at the time we kind of meet it, it's right at kind of an inflection point of going from kind of a prototypical 70s, 80s, kind of bedroom suburb kind of place to mm-hmm. um, starting to turn into this more diverse, more socioeconomically diverse, more racially diverse, um, you know, more dense, just kind of more varied part down with all of these kind of aging infrastructure that it needs to take care of. And so um, that's kind of setting the stage and it's kind of now under pressure from new excerpts developing even further out than it. And so that's kind of where we meet it in the, the Becker family there. Yeah, you're talking about in the 2000s up to 2010, at the very least, and I'm sure it's still expanding, that there was this this dramatic increase in people from different uh, racial backgrounds and and ethnic backgrounds. Is that just a product of, like, you know, because initially it was, you know, it was white folks, right? 
And but now you see it there, and of course in many parts of the country where it is multi-ethnic families, it's you know black and Asian, Hispanic. Is that just a kind of product you think of where the country is? Like it's becoming more and more, um, you know, dynamic, you know, racially and ethnically. It's not really like by design necessarily, right? It's not even you know we're going to have a Latin community or a black community. It's just more of as the country continues to diversify. We're just going to see a lot more of that in in suburbs, which can kind of give initially maybe some tension if, you know, there's three or four black families, let's say, and they're moving into an all white suburb mostly, you know, but give it 10 years and that's going to be dramatically shifted. Do we see that kind of thing going on around many suburbs in the U.S.? Yeah, I I think we do. And I think, you know, Plano, uh, you know, in, in Collin County, north of Texas becomes kind of this concentrated example because they have a really strong economy there and in some ways a really kind of metropolitan economy, you know, large factory headquarters. Toyota opened up there, you know, within the last two decades and that you know, just thousands and thousands of, you know, well-paying management technology jobs that draw pe- drew people from all over the country. So, but the, what you see there, you know, there, as you see in many other communities, like you mentioned, you, you know, we are having this kind of, that's part of this larger demographic shift that uh, mm-hmm. we're really kind of like, you know, we're nearing the crest of where we see, you know, the suburbs have gone from 79% white three decades ago to 55% white now. And that mm. the trend is accelerating. Like inside suburban public schools, white kids are already the minority. Mm. And so, you know, we kind of see those dynamics happening. And, you know, there's the conflict um, interpersonally and between groups that happens when, you know, that, that comes together. But there's also this kind of conflict people have internally with like, I thought this place was one thing. I thought my life here was one thing. Um, and in fact, it's turning out to be another. And I have to figure out how to deal with that. Yeah, the, the bits in, 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 in Texas were interesting. I, I thought of the, the film Tree of Life, where it's very much, I don't know if you've seen the film, but it's this Terry Malick film. It's a beautiful film. And it, it basically, it's, it's kind of a nonlinear film, but it talks about this like um, this white family in a, in a, in a suburban house uh, or neighborhood in, uh, in the forties or fifties uh, in Texas. And I think the dad is played by Brad Pitt. You know, he works in like a plant and it's, it's a booming place. And then, you know, you kind of fast forward and you see the sun. Uh, I think it's in, you know, kind of modern day, which was, I guess would be the 2010s where he, he works in a very, you know, it's, it's, it's expanding and it's grown. And I think it's another part of Texas. And it's very interesting to see neighborhoods and things, uh, change and shift over 40, 50 years and, and, and what that looks like and whether it's by design or, or, or not by design. It's also interesting too, in the Texas piece uh, is my understanding is, is that people, many folks in Texas is, <laughs> I know I have, I know, I know some folks in Texas. Hmm. Texas is, uh, is interesting because I mean, they have their own kind of history and stuff, but it's very much uh, you're Texan first and then you're American. <laughs> And it's always interesting to me when you see people from from Mexico or from Latin American countries or, you know, obviously white folks or even black folks. or You know, when you have all these different types of groups, there's almost a kind of maybe if you get like second, first or second generation into it, there's a kind of adopting that kind of mentality, right, of like we're Texan first, you know, and then we're, you know, maybe, you know, American and things like that. Sort of kind of half serious, half, you know, whatever. But it's, it's interesting how there's a kind of in terms of like, if there is an ever changing kind of uh, suburban culture or even urban culture, but suburban culture, what does it mean about the very distinct historical kinds of like, you know, cultural things that like Texans are 
you know, kind of their identity. You know, what do you, what do you, what do you think about that kind of piece of it? I mean, I think the way for me that showed up a lot, both in Texas and in some ways in a lot of the other communities I followed as well, is that there's this kind of tension that we're seeing now where the, the kind of, I guess, principle or mindset around which suburbia was most of, much of post where suburbia was developed was really around this kind of like individualistic, um, I'm mm. going to do what's best, get as much the best position I can and put myself in and kind of constantly be in that race to do that. Mm. And so, you know, th- what you saw is like that worked when there was um, policies of exclusion to kind of keep everyone else out. And when it was yeah. kind of a community was developed for like kind of all one group of people with the same stage in life, you know, young families all kind of at the more or less same stage and, you know, kind of works for that group at that point in time. But eventually the place changes. And what you start to see is like that, that mindset of like, it's just everyone in it for themselves. And how do we kind of set up a community like that? What you need is much more kind of cooperation because you have people at different stages of life from different backgrounds, from different economic stations. So you need some level of cooperation to kind of work through the conflicts over resources that happen. Um, and suburbs are often just really ill-equipped for that. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's that's an interesting point. So, you know, so we can move to to, to Georgia. So in, in Gwinnett County, um, you kind of Talk about this, uh, you know, there's a surge, a massive surge of, of African-American uh, black families into the U.S. suburbs between 1960 and 1980. My assumption on that was that there, this was, I guess, a part of the civil rights kind of progress and things that we had in this mass suburbanization. Uh, was, was that a big feature? In, and I guess in, in, you know, in Georgia specifically and definitely around Atlanta and different counties in Gwinnett County, you're talking about this kind of black advance and a white retreat there. Talk about this again. The, the the South. This part of the South is is very interesting. Obviously, you know, different. You know, there's obviously a, a history there. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> a dark history and, and and so on. So, what's the kind of I guess uh, makeup there of this these kind of racial relations within uh, in in Georgia and especially in Gwinnett County? Yeah, was, uh, you know, Metro Atlanta is another place where you kind of see this pattern of concentric rings of outward development. And so, you know, initially, uh, those, that suburban development was white, and it was largely fueled by um, white folks who were you know, get, trying to get away from the integration of the city. Um, mm. And so, you know, the, the suburban communities in DeKalb County, for example, really kind of start to develop in that way. But around, uh, you know, in the 60s, fair housing uh, movement within the civil rights movement becomes very active, culminating in 1968 with, you know, successful get, get, successfully getting fair housing laws. Um, there's, um, you know, other civil rights advances throughout the Supreme court, um, is, you know, getting kind of much more engaged, um, in school desegregation cases and saying, no, 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 you can't keep dragging your feet forever here. We have to do this for real. Um, so the suburbs are just kind of opening up, uh, politically and kind of socially. Um, but there's also this economic thing that's happening where you have this growing black middle class, um, you know, a lot of kind of professional jobs, uh, that weren't, uh, open before are suddenly open to African-Americans who are able to take that and then they're you know, kind of building a middle-class life on that as well. Mm. And so what you see really kind of going, if you kind of go up northeast from Atlanta, you know, through DeKalb, up into Gwinnett, and, and then beyond, you'll see this kind of like, you described kind of like just the uh, white, uh, a black advance and then white retreat moment further out and that happening, you know, over mm. the course, multiple times over the course of generations. Yeah, and, and now we have, I mean, in the modern era, I mean, we have a massive uh, you know, a black community in, in Atlanta. I mean, and, and it's not just Atlanta, the city. It's, it's also, as you're talking about these kind of rings outside of it, 
Um, you know, what, what do we, what do we make of, I guess, these, these kinds of, you, you can't ever plan certain things, right? You can't, I mean, I mean, people may try to, you know, kind of do urban planning, things like that, but we have these kind of in different parts of the city, um, the, the country, these kind of clusters of where people kind of coalesce together. And what do you think in, in this scenario? I mean, you, you talk about um, in the book, you know, different types of class right now you're going to see um, different, different types of class with different types of racial groups. So it's now there's a, there's a racial component there, but there's also a socioeconomic component as well. And so what, what do we make as we see the evolution of these things in, in certain areas and particularly in, in Georgia? Yeah, I think, I think that's what, what I hope the book does and what I really you know, kind of guided me and how I was trying to write it was thinking about, you know, there's these sociological patterns that are happening. Um, you know, and in, in this case, you know, it's this kind of like aging suburbs, kind of that process of uh, aging and uh, raising taxes to provide declining services. Like all of that stuff kind of starts to happen. Um, in, in this, as a result of these kind of economic and land use and structural forces we've put together, but there's also us as families and how we relate to that, how we try and make our own decisions and try and make the best lives that we can, um, and build a society we want within that. And so, you know, in, uh, Atlanta, what you see is this, again, it's kind of a, bringing a lot of hopes and dreams out to those suburban communities, um, African-American families as they, they start to suburbanize, um, but not getting what they signed up for because the place right. wasn't really designed for them. There's still a lot of racial hostility, sometimes racial violence. And then even when things kind of start to settle down, there's just this sense of we don't belong. Oftentimes it feels mm. really pronounced in the public school system. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely, I'll come to schools in a minute. I, I, I'm, 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 there's that, that becomes a, a kind of a theme throughout. So in Evanston, Illinois, uh, you talk about how there's a kind of, um, multi-ethnic heritage that you kind of mentioned in the beginning that there's like, there's this pride of, 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 you know, having different, uh, people from different backgrounds there. Um, there's a few places where, where I'm at in Maryland, where there, there's also, I'm thinking of one place in particular where that's very much kind of their, the pride there, but it, it becomes interesting, right? Because you, you, <laughs> you might have, you might, I don't want to say solve one problem, but you, you, there's always something that kind of will kind of rock the boat of sorts. And so, um, you don't paint the most rosy picture of it, right? There's some, maybe some good things, but there's also some, some difficult pieces here. Um, and so, you know, Illinois has a unique uh, history. You talk about it being a free state and then there's, you know, different points, black codes, things like that. What was the, the emphasis here? You can, we can bring the schools thing into it now on promoting good education in, in this, in this area for a variety of ethnicities and, and specifically for black folks. What was their kind of emphasis there on the education system? And yeah, tell us about this not so kind of rosy picture there. I and mean, there's kind of a, just to kind of paint a picture of, of Evanston, if you haven't been there, or if listeners aren't familiar, you know, it's this kind of like leafy college town just north of Chicago, right on the shores of Lake Michigan. It's very kind of picturesque with wide streets and tall old growth trees and the sunlight mm -hmm. comes in and it's just gorgeous. And so there's this kind of like Evanston nickname. And part of that has been, you know, that it's a racially diverse community and has been for a long time. It has a really rich history. Uh, you know, going back to the 1800s, of a strong African-American presence and community, very much uh, active in shaping the culture and life of the town going back well before World War II. And so, you know, on one hand, you kind of look at this and say, okay, this is a place that's working. They desegregated their schools, uh, their elementary and middle schools in 1968. They've maintained racial balance since then, which very few suburbs have done. 
There was a lot of explicit attention to issues of race and racial equity. So it was kind of like I initially went into Evanston thinking like, okay, here's a place that's kind of figuring this out. Maybe there's some lessons here for the other communities that are going to go through this soon. And there definitely were some lessons. I mean, it's really interesting what is happening there. But um, it was um, the path that kind of got followed was not what um, folks really expected. And so kind of each kind of new policy shift and new you know, kind of point of emphasis from the school board as it became more progressive, more focused on uh, racial equity, you know, it was kind of met with more challenges, more backlash, more concern, more inertia. And so, you know, you see this real weariness emerging there. Mm. Yeah, it's just very, it's very interesting how there's, I don't know, there's a, that becomes almost a, their normal, right? And so when that's their, their normal, uh, yeah, we're, we're used to people from different backgrounds, things like that. You start to see other things arise and other things that become, you know, kind of problematic uh, in, in, in interesting ways. Um, so tell us about uh, Penn Hills. So this is, this is your, uh, your backyard um, in Pennsylvania. This is east, east, uh, just east of uh, Pittsburgh. Yeah, that's right. Uh, all right. I, I will. I will give you a pass because you're you're my guest, but uh, I'm assuming you're a Steelers fan, and uh, o- over here we're we're big Ravens fans, so I apologize. I, I apologize in advance. Well, you so. got me on both ends. I'm actually a Steelers and an Eagles fan. <laughs> oh, so. <laughs> oh man, it's a hard. It's going to be a hard, a hard, a hard, a hard weekend in here in the playoffs here for you. Yes, it's true. Tell us about Penn Hills. You know, it's uh, it really. I grew up in the '50s and '60s. Um, it was um, you know post-war sub that population exploded very quickly. Um, and, you know, I, I grew up there. My family moved there in 1976, right before I was born. And, you know, our house was a thousand and one square foot ranch house, you know, with a little yard. And, you know, we my dad was kind of a do-it-yourself guy. And so he was like building planters and putting in playgrounds and kind of doing all of this stuff over the course of my childhood. Um, but over time, you know, my brothers and I went away to school. My mom and dad ended up divorcing. 30 years go by, and now he's in a place where um, he's long ago stopped his do-it-yourself projects. And in fact, a lot of the detritus of, the, of that effort has started to accumulate in a real kind of eyesore way in the backyard, mm-hmm. um, uh, which kind of is like this hillside that goes down to the parkway. So it's, you know, you drive down below and you would look up and you would see these barrels he just had stacked and stacked and stacked. Mm-hmm. And so he leaves. Um, but that mess... Um, that, you know, kind of accumulated over the course of my childhood and his life, it kind of gets left behind in our backyard. And for me, that kind of becomes a microcosm of like this relationship that I'm trying to figure out with this community that really gave me a lot, gave me all kinds of opportunities, provided a springboard to, you know, a comfortable middle-class life. Um, but there was a cost to that and it's getting paid now. And so trying mm. to, to recognize that and come to terms with that is kind of the emotional heart of the book. You talk about this, there's this piece on this, on this section about Penn Hills, which was interesting. You talk about that this region, and I'm sure there are other uh, suburbs or areas in the country that have something similar, is being on the brink of multiple futures, which is a really nice way of putting it. Um, what is it about the area or the history that makes it seem like it could go in this direction, it could go in this direction, it could go in this direction, but you know, it's, it's, it's going whatever direction it is. But what, what do you mean by this kind of multiple futures kind of uh, sentiment? Well, in some ways, uh, you know, the community has a lot going for it. It's proximity to Pittsburgh. There's a highway right nearby. You know, it's a large, large kind of stretch of land. Um, and so there's always been this kind of sense of like, and it, there's really strong community in there. It's like, you know, there's a, um, kind of neighborhood based, based on kind of the white, white ethnic group community. And there's been a strong black community there since, 
um, you know, way back in the first half of the 20th century. And so there's a lot kind of going for it in those ways. And there's a sense of like, if we kind of start planning ahead, if we do things right from the start, if we then have a plan in place to not only maintain and repair this stuff, but uh, to do so regularly and proactively, not just responding to crises, like we can make this last. You know, the, the boom might not be quite as great, but if we invest in the next generation of this, we can make it last. But like the place just never decides to do that. So there's this whole issue with its sewer systems that uh, stretches on for 30 years because no one will actually deal with the problem that ends up culminating with my hometown becoming the first municipality in the country convicted of a federal environmental crime. And then a similar kind of thing happens when you know, the enrollment of the public school system is changing dramatically and overall enrollment is declining. And the school board decides to build two new schools, but it turns into this kind of massive boondoggle that leaves the community's $172 million debt. And mm-hmm. so, you know, this kind of pattern of like, we could do things that might sustain what is in many ways a very wonderful and strong and close-knit community, but we just make the wrong choice again and again and again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very interesting. It's, it's, it, I mean, it, Pittsburgh's, you know, up the road from me, so it's been about three and a half, four hours for me, but I live out in, in uh, Western Maryland. Mm-hmm. And that, that story sounds very similar to many of the towns and suburbs that I, I, I see here and I, I don't live that far from, from West Virginia. And um, yeah, here in Western Maryland and, and, and this part of, you know, that part of Pennsylvania and West Virginia and in Eastern Ohio is all this kind of Appalachia kind of towns where it, it, there's a lot of, there's actually a lot of really wonderful, you know, beautiful things about it naturally. And there's a lot of potential, but you see a lot of, mm, I don't know. I, I don't want to say disappointment because that sounds like super negative. I mean, the people are nice, but it's, there's, it could be a lot more. It could be a lot more. And I do think you saw a little bit of that with Pittsburgh. I know, you know, over past 20 years, they've done a lot of really building out and things like that. But I don't know how much that that kind of leaks into the suburbs um, and, you know, how much the impact of that is there. But, um, you know, I think there's certainly places where people do try and they do try and do it certain, you know, certain ways. But Penn Hills has been a, a place that, you know, has a you know, strong history of kind of local activism and where, you know, people and parent that people care about the community. It's just yeah. that this kind of the, the mindset and principles upon which it's built um, are just really hard to work around unless you're you know, going at it very intentionally and with a lot of resources and support. And so it becomes in part of the, the, the kind of population trend or wave we see, you know, thinking about how that connects back to the city. It's almost like the wave hitting one end of the tub and then starting to ripple back. Uh, and so nice. what you yeah. see yeah. is, you know, a lot of gentrification in Pittsburgh, particularly mm-hmm. in, uh, you know, East Liberty and kind of areas around University of Pittsburgh and Carnegie Mellon. Um, mm-hmm. And so um, Bethany Smith, who's the mom who now lives on my old street in Penn Hills, she grew up in a kind of a historic black neighborhood in downtown Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Um, and over time, it had really gotten eroded. And then she kind of, her family kind of got pushed out to the East End of Pittsburgh. And then from there, kind of out mm-hmm. to the suburbs. And so, you know, she's still very attached to where she goes up. But when she goes back to her old high school, for example, it's now condominiums that go for uh, and apartments that, um, you know, are for graduate students in the area. Yeah. Yeah, 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 this we gentrification is a huge issue. And I mean, I've seen it in D.C. and a little bit in Baltimore. Like, yeah, it's 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 a it's 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 a it's a tricky thing for sure. Absolutely. It's tricky. Um, So go all the way on the other side of the country. And so you go to outside of Los Angeles, you go to Compton. I mean, of course, many people know about Compton, especially from the early 90s and stuff. But you gave a nice kind of summary in the in the beginning of this part of the book of, you know, L.A. has such a terribly fascinating history 
about the founding families there being from all over the place, you know, mestizos, Spaniards, indigenous, uh, uh, Native Americans, you know, Africans, African Indians, Filipinos, Mexicans, mixed individuals. There's so many people from its kind of origins and beginning. How does this kind of kaleidoscope of families and individuals and all these things connect with kind of the modern makeup of, you know, uh, Los Angeles maybe, but specifically Compton in that region? Yeah, I think sometimes we kind of, as Americans, kind of lose track of the history that some cities and communities and regions that are, you know, established core parts of the United States now, like Los Angeles, but they kind yeah. of, like their origin stories are not the same as the origin stories of uh, Eastern Seaboard. And we kind yeah, of like yeah. gloss over that, particularly those of us who are East Coasters. And I think, you know, kind of understanding that it has this very different history. Um, mm-hmm. And part of that history with the original establishment of the Puebla that became Los Angeles, um, you know, is this incredibly diverse group of people. And there were, you know, it's a small kind of group kind of trying to survive, uh, you know, in a difficult place, difficult time. But they, you know, there's no kind of real class or race hierarchy at first. And there's this kind of thing of like, there are these examples through our own history where like that kind of model comes up and then you kind of see what happens. And so, you know, obviously Los Angeles didn't develop um, along that principle and you had, uh, you know, mass genocide of the indigenous populations in the years that followed. And, you know, it was um, the history developed as it did. But we see in Compton, you know, this place that once was a prototypical all white bedroom suburb of Los Angeles up until about 1950. And then demographics start changing. The tax base starts dwindling. There's tremendous white flight. It becomes the largest black-run community west of the Mississippi. And then you have this kind of growing um, Hispanic and Latino population as well. And so um, for a long time, the Compton schools really, really struggled. But now they kind of seem to be really coming out of that. And there's this kind of fragile rebirth that is happening there. And what was really moving to me about that, to see it and kind of be, um, you know, kind of with it firsthand, is just how diverse the group of educators who are leading that is. So you have black school board chair and black superintendent, a Filipino principal, um, the, the teacher whose fourth grade classroom I followed is Chilean. You know, so it's just this uh, really, really kind of diverse group of people coming together to say, how do we kind of extend that old suburban contract to the kids who the suburbs used to try to keep out? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's very nice. Well, this is where the history becomes super important. Uh, and I, I totally agree with you on what you're saying. So I guess to, to, to kind of uh, step back a minute, my question when I was reading this, and I, I guess I was kind of like middle of the book of sorts, I was like, okay, if, I, I kind of have like my teeth in all of these kind of regions and kind of with, you know, the families and stuff and some of the kind of issues there. And I, I have this, I mean, this is, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't think any one of us are going to have the answer to this, but it's an interesting question that I think is worth considering is, how do you, when you have um, a place or a region that has, uh, it could be diverse racially or, 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 or with class or what have you, or not, but when you have uh, a place that has a unique history and they have a culture and they've built that over time, and then you have big change very fast, how do you, how do you handle that? Like, how do you, how do you, how is there... How is there not going to be some 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 hiccups? There's going to be some speed bumps. There's going to be some conflict. There's people don't typically like change. Uh, they definitely don't like change that fast. I don't think that makes people, um, you know, you know, evil or, or or terrible. But how do we how do how do we have this kind of thing in like in different parts of the country, where 
we can respect culture and history that people have built there before. And over time, slowly, you're able to say, yes, but we're evolving into, you know, this decade or this century or whatever. And then it slowly starts to change. How do we do both of those things where we're like, yeah, we don't want to stay stuck in the past and it's just this way. We do want to progress for various reasons. Um, But how do we also respect, uh, you know, culture and history that's been built there sometimes, you know, uh, for for a long time? How, How do you? What's that kind of balancing act, do you think? What are your, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, well, this question really kind of, I think, gets to the heart of the structural forces behind the argument that I'm describing in the book. Because, you know, on the one hand, um, historically, the way we've responded to those kinds of, like, dramatic demographic uh, changes is by uh, the families who can, particularly properly mobile white families, move away. And you kind of move one ring further out. And so you've had this kind of, like, cycle of advance and retreat, advance and retreat, um, in some ways, that's prevented all of this from coming to a head because you weren't mm. stuck in place having to battle it out over values, resources, yeah. policies, personnel, budgets, mm-hmm. all of those things. But now that's becoming a little bit less possible uh, for the housing market is tight. It's, you know, water is an issue in much of the Southwest. You know, there's all of these mm-hmm. kind of forces that are making it harder and harder to do that. And at the same time, we have these dramatic demographic changes that are only going to accelerate. Like suburbs mm-hmm. are going to get more and more diverse very Absolutely. quickly. Um, and so those structural things, like those aren't going away. And so then the question kind of becomes, okay, how do we do, like you said, how do we deal with that differently? How do, mm. Because we're going to have to figure it out um, together in some way. Mm. Yeah, and this is where I think that, you know, this is something that the young generation teaches me all the time. You know, it is, uh, you know, I have a, a daughter that's uh, in high school. Mm. And is, you know, I think we we make a a, a big deal about race and, and ethnicity and and I think based on our history even more recently that's a big deal. I, I think it is a big deal and you know we do have to you know reckon with a lot of things. But what's going to happen over the you know it's happening very fast and it's going to continue to happen 10, 25, 50 years is there's just everyone's going to be mixed. Everyone racially there's there's more and more of you know a lot of uh, you know uh, multiracial or multiethnic uh, kinds of individuals. And it's not going to be so clearly black and white, this kind of, you know, this or this or, you know, whatever. And and I wonder how much the saliency of race continues to push things if you just have a bunch of people that are all mixed. When we're not talking from five generations and someone that came here from whatever, you know, my parents are, you know, uh, uh, my mom's black, my dad's white, or you know, my, my dad is, you know, Latin and my mom's from the Philippines. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's going to be like that close. And what does that mean where you have generations of that? I wonder how much the saliency of, and it's not that race won't be important. And of course it is, but of more of how do we understand where people are in their communities? And just like what you're saying, how do you learn how to live together even though you have different backgrounds or you have different kinds of uh, social structures, things like that? How do we decide in this community or in this town or in this place? How do we, we, we kind of do that? How much do you see that as becoming more as we're, you know, we're 2024, right? You know, what, you know, in 25 years, we'll be in 2050. Like, you know, how do we see that over the next, you know, 10, 20 years of, of where suburbs or communities go? Well, I think that, um, you know, to your question about kind of like the, uh, changing complexion of America and kind of like the, the diversity of kind of multiracial, 
um, identity and so forth. I think in some ways that's at the heart of what a lot of what we're seeing is kind of tension and conflict because not yeah. even just that, um, that, you know, there's a different proportion of white people and people of color in the community, but because these kind of very notions of either or are kind of really mm-hmm. kind of getting broken down. Um, mm-hmm. And for many people in America, that's a positive, wonderful development. And for a lot of people in suburbia in particular, it's a very troubling, concerning development. Like that kind of order is based on we're this, we're not that, we're here, we're not there. Um, and so, you know, that makes it really, um, really tough. I think is kind of a foundational place to kind of work around. Part of what was so fascinating to me about Evanston was that, you know, you had this place where it was being very intentional about trying to work that out um, and, you know, talking about it like all the time, everywhere. Mm. Um, mm. And the struggle was still really, really pronounced. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's, 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 it's examples like that. They're like, okay, so what's, what's missing or what's really, we're not getting to the heart of some things. And again, each place is different. You can't, you know, what, what you do in, in Missoula is not what you're going to do in uh, Des Moines, right? Like there's, there's difference here and in, in different. And I think it has to be a kind of, I mean, there's some similarities, but you have to take a kind of uh, individualist approach of saying, what does this town do? Or what does this community do? And sure, you can borrow from other places, but I think it's important to see like, how are they, people here created things and places have a different history, you know, out West is a little bit different than, yeah, you know, a, a suburb of, you know, Boston or something, right? It's a totally different history. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think like part of what becomes tricky, but also becomes an opportunity is that within all of that variation and difference, there's also like kind of this common theme and it's part of where Compton becomes such a powerful example of and mm-hmm. kind of a beautiful place what's happening there because it's saying what the, the kind of core thread is how do we take those, those you know, central principles of what drove mass suburbanization kind of in a good way, you know, this kind of idea of investing massively in our children to shape the future. How do we take that but put it into a kind of a larger um, worldview and kind of mindset that's about extending that to everyone being much more inclusive about it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I totally agree. Um, so you, you talk about, uh, let's talk about schools, because I think this is something that comes up all throughout the book. Um, and you talk about there's, I mean, all these stories of, I mean, there's, there's one thing, wonderful thing about the book is that you give so many good uh, you know, narrative accounts and so many stories about all these things. And so it's, you're talking about there's, you know, lack of resources, financial ruin, racial challenges in the school systems. And as we see through time, People become, I mean, one of the things that when people go to vote, like school board is one of the most important things because that has like direct impact for people. And people really do, especially parents, especially people that are are more at home or more involved in their kids' lives. They really become invested in this stuff. And, you know, as they, as they should, you know, I think that that's, that's important. How does how the, what is this, like this, the centrality for families in suburban homes that school district issues have? Uh, why is that, why is that so important for people? I know it's like, yeah, people care about their kids and stuff, but like, it really does become important. And, you know, you could take different, um, uh, political examples where like school issues become the central thing of like that political campaign and things like that, you know? So why is this so, so important for people? Why do they get so ramped up about this, uh, you know, around, around the country and in different suburbs? I think, uh, Atlanta metro area, again, is a great example of this. And so in Gwinnett, um, you know, when I kind of pick up the story, you know, that's now a place that as recently as 1990 was 90% white. Now it's two thirds uh, non-white. And so you have this kind of really almost total kind of flip of the population, but this, the institutions are still controlled uh, by that past generation of predominantly older, predominantly white um, elect, local elected officials. 
And so that starts to become really an issue in the school board, which not until 2018 has never had a school board member of color, despite having 180,000 students, two thirds of whom are non-white. Mm-hmm. And so um, in 2018, uh, a young black man who actually grew up in Gwinnett County um, named Everton Blair gets elected to the school board and kind of heralds this kind of change about to come. But I think part of what you see there with that is that, you know, again, this whole institution is a $2.3 billion bureaucracy right now, the Gwinnett County Public Schools. It was built up around this kind of like one core vision of one core community that it was dedicated to serving. And, you know, there's adaptations and changes with that, but it's still oriented in that way. And so the school board members who are trying to defend their seats, who are in their 70s, in some cases 80s, you know, trying to defend these seats are saying like, listen, this is the value that the, the kind of approach to education, the way to run a bureaucracy that made this place what it is that you wanted to come here for in the first place. Why are we going to change it now? And it's, so it's a very deep thing of like, A, we think this is right. And B, we built it. And mm-hmm. so um, there's, in some ways, I think what drives the conflict though, is there's, while there are those strong feelings, there's this kind of un- inability or unwillingness to see how a changing population might have different needs, values, priorities, um, gifts that it's bringing into the schools um, and the system's inability to adjust to that and trying to hold on to the way things were become kind of this like background for conflict. Yeah, this is where I I wonder, there's so many good people working in schools, but there are so many at that level, but also at this level that you're talking about, there are a lot of systemic issues. I mean, I mean, you can't see it any other way, I don't think. I mean, and many times people that work there will say this, like, well, this is just a systems issue or this is like a, you know, whatever issue. That doesn't mean you shouldn't have a system or a hierarchy, but you absolutely should reform it and should try to make changes. But, you know, I think when people see a need, a lot of the times people go to extremes of trying to, like, fix that need. And, you know, because people are, are responding out of emotion, which I, I, I understand. So it's, I wonder though, how much do we have, <laughs> this is a big ask, right? How, how could schools proactively, you know, do things to, to like change things, right? But, you know, trying to proactively do anything is almost like a, you know, it's like a wish list, right? It's like, yeah. that's never going to happen. And I think part of what becomes so, makes schools so fascinating as, as kind of a, a lens and a, a stage for a lot of these conflicts. So one, it happens in schools first. You know, you have kids, mm-hmm. you know, tell us where our population is going. Um, but so then also, it's just, there's such personal places. You know, yeah. it's this intimate contact with total strangers, you know, every mm-hmm. day in ways mm-hmm. that are like very influential, not just now, but for that young person's entire future. And like parents have invested money, their entire educational careers themselves, their own dreams and ambitions in this kind of place being a certain thing. And so, you know, what became like interesting in a place like Evanston, where you saw like a lot of this kind of push and pull around this, was I think, you know, the school board chair there, who I got to know a little bit, was an African-American woman who was, you know, very kind of progressive, very pushing the system far left. And she said, you know, towards the end of the book, one of the things that she kind of came away with was like, we need to give people who are losing something the space to mourn what they're losing. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And she's like, I increasingly recognize the need for that. But what I won't do is let their feelings, let their feelings um, drive all of our policy decisions. And so like that was mm-hmm. kind of, for me, that was like a powerful distinction, powerful way to think about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I talked with um, somebody on the podcast um, about about this idea of, of loss. And she had this book on politics of loss. It was 
it's interesting because she was like, you know, we don't, we don't talk about it in democracy. We don't talk about it in a lot of things, but when there are losers, when somebody has, you know, in this context, an election or something like that. And I think in a, in a, in a broader space, it's like, yeah, when somebody gets something, there's somebody else that's not getting something right. And there, you have to give people a space for that. I, I, I agree with that. Yeah, and I think part and, of what be- I'm sorry if I may, but part of what becomes really challenged though is then, you know, we have um, you know families from different backgrounds and histories and communities and circumstances who have similarly intense feelings about what they're losing. But mm-hmm, mm-hmm, when you mm-hmm. look at them from another perspective, it can be like the two things that the thing that my family feels like it's losing, mm-hmm. kind of seen next to the thing your family feels like it's losing, and mm-hmm. my thing is kind of like I don't want my children to wear masks. And someone else says, I just lost three family members. How, you know, right, bringing right. that together kind of becomes very tricky. So like the intensity is there, yeah. the stakes are often kind of different. I, I absolutely agree. And this is what makes it hard. I think people can conceptually agree with it. But when you get to, you know, pick your issue, people feel, I mean, very, very, very animated in opposite directions. And so it's like, so kind of to your point about schools being very personal, it's like, yeah, this is where my kids spending you know, majority of their time for years, you know, I mean, you think of an elementary school, people can be there six, seven years every day, six to eight hours a day. If there's aftercare, that's a whole amount of time. Like, it's not just, I, I understand what people say is like, oh, we're just getting education and stuff. It's like, yeah, it's not just that they're doing all these other things. They're creating social relationships. They're doing, you know, there's, there's all this learning that goes in. There's so much of like our development is in uh, in a school building. Right. And I think that that's, that's a good thing. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but it, it I think to your point is it, it does become very personal for people. And so what, in, in the case you're giving, you know, yes, I don't want, you know, my kid wearing a, you know, a mask for, you know, six hours, you know, and then someone's like, yeah, I just, you know, had three people that died. And it's just like, yeah, there's, especially again, at the beginning of the pandemic, people were, you know, we didn't know anything, right. This is moving target every like week it was like, well, now it's this, now it's not this, not, you know, um, now we have probably a little bit more understanding, but you know, it's just, yeah, I think that that's, that becomes particularly instructive. And I think, you know, part of what I hope the book does too, is like, you know, with the, um, uh, you know, is kind of give a look beneath the surface of some of these kind of like, you know, um, issues that become symptoms of something deeper. And so like, mm-hmm. you know, in Texas, for example, with the Becker family, the affluent white family who had moved out to the, the town of Lucas, you know, so they had really moved there for this school district. Um, but within a year, you know, when the pandemic hits in particular, you know, there's a sense of being very kind of dissatisfied with it. And like, you know, so something's driving that that's, you know, have made this big decision to relocate the entire family to, yeah. uh, you know, to have this relationship with the school system. And then, you know, a year, 18 months later, kind of severing that relationship, like that's a big deal. And so it's really important to understand, I think, what the kind of emotion and thought and principle is it's kind of driving folks to have such strong feelings in that way. And, you know, I think, you know, what I kind of came away, part of what I came away with from the Becker story with was that it's about masks. Yes. But there's like this larger sense of like our ability to, to be free, to do what we want, to make the choices that we want without having to kind of think about these other kind of considerations um, Mm -hmm. that um, feels like it's, that's the thing that feels like it's being lost and it comes out in lots of different ways. And I think that that's an interesting thing because I think that in each part of the country or, 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 or certain communities or places, people are going to make that decision. Right. And so I think people would kind of, mm, uh, talk disparagingly about like, well, those people in the red States, they don't care. And they just, they're, you know, not wearing any masks and not following any rules. And certainly, I mean, I think early on during a global pandemic, that was, you know, probably not wise. 
I do think there is later on a space where it's like, well, that's what a real liberal pluralism is, right? I mean, I think there are exceptions to that, um, but I think that, yeah, you know, people can move, they want to move to a place where they have more quote unquote freedom. I mean, that's the, that's the, that's the agreement that can only change, I think, slowly over time. That's not going to it always, I mean, it depends, but that's not always going to change, you know, in a month because a bunch of people got, you know, really loud at a school board meeting one night. And I think it's, there are other places where that's not the case, right? There's, you know, plenty of, of, of communities and, and uh, suburbs where it was the opposite. So I think it's an interesting thing that people will make decisions based on that. I will totally agree with you. I, I didn't really realize this, but I know people that are married with no kids and when they're deciding to buy a house, top three issues of buying a house isn't how many square feet and, you know, what, what's, uh, you know, is there a new uh, Starbucks in the communities? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's what's the school district? Mm-hmm. Like people, that's like top three of like people deciding where they buy a house right. for ostensibly <clears throat> 30 plus years. That's that, insane. Right? That, that's crazy. That question. How's the school district? Like it contains so many multitudes of like right, what right, our right, values right. are, how, what we think is good and bad, what we, you know, our disposition right. to the future is like, that is a pregnant question right there with lots of things going on. Yeah. And yeah. so when that is sh- kind of shifting under, your, <clears throat> excuse me, shifting under your feet, like things are, are going to be messy. And when it's happening mm-hmm. kind of on a wide scale, things are going to be messy. And so, mm-hmm. you know, part of what, you know, you talk about kind of school board meetings, like that's part of why I end up really kind of arguing in the book that it's, it's suburbia and particularly public school systems in suburbia that are now like really the front lines in these fights. Like we've been thinking mm-hmm. about cities and segregation mm-hmm. and the decimation of America's cities. And that's obviously still super important in rural America. You know, there's a lot going on there that we you know miss at a national level that's happening there too. But really I think that Absolutely. the core of the place where like these two different sets of values and histories and mindsets and, and really more than two, but these kind of like competing senses of, of all of these things are kind of coming together and colliding. You know, a generation ago, a couple of generations ago, that would have been in like uh, inner ring suburbs uh, or, or those places. But now it's happening all over suburbia. I, I totally agree with that. I think that sub suburbia now, even when I lived there a little bit when I was younger, is different now because I feel like there's a kind of colliding. So there's people that come from rural America or maybe lower middle class or even even, you know, poor folks. And if they, you know, as they, you know, get older and they, they, you know, they work their way up or they get a good job or whatever, they finish school and they're like, okay, I can move. I don't want to move to the city. It's too expensive. There's too many, you know, I'm from a rural place. I don't, there's too many people. It's not my lifestyle. Okay. But suburbs is good enough. Fine. And then you have what you talked about in places like in Dallas or in Atlanta or things like that, where people are kind of either, you know, kind of retreating or pushed out or they're even by choice coming out. It's like, you know what? City life has been too long. I want a little bit quieter. Okay. I'm going to go to the suburbs. I feel like there's a kind of colliding of sorts in the suburbs of people from that had city life for a long time, or they were raised there, or you have people that from rural life uh, and they're just kind of (laughs) colliding with different viewpoints and different worldviews in the suburbs. And that's why we're seeing this kind of like, as you say, these kind of front lines on a lot of these issues. Is, is that kind of track with what, what you're kind of saying as well? Yeah, right? absolutely. And one of the things that was just so powerful to me kind of in the process of reporting this was, again, I started in my hometown. Like, why is, why is this place spiraling? Like, it just didn't make sense with what my expectations were of what that mm. place should be. And mm. then kind of saying, well, is it only happening here or is it happening other places too? And mm-hmm. then that question, mm-hmm. it was like, 
I scratch, felt like I scratched the ceiling and the whole, you know, <laughs> thing came, kind of came tumbling down. It was like, wait, this is happening. Every community that I'm looking at or every metropolitan area that I'm looking at, there's some version of this same cycle and pattern that's kind of now playing out. And when you think about it, it actually makes sense because those communities all like they sprouted up very quickly, like in the, in the yeah, grand scheme yeah. of things, 30, 35, mm-hmm. 40 years to totally transform our housing market and land use. Like that's overnight. And so it makes yeah. sense that things we didn't expect problems, issues, like those are all going to kind of come to a head very quickly because they were built very quickly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I totally agree. It's, it's, it's an interesting thing to really kind of sit and think about. So I guess a few, a few, a few pieces here we touched on a little bit, but, um, yeah, this chapter of the book is this liberals versus progressives, which is interesting. And as you're saying, you know, and this kind of came, you know, more recently, you know, twenty post 2015, post 2020 of all these cultural war issues, which, you know, I kind of find, I think they're important, but I, how they get talked about starts to get obnoxious to me. But how, how do we, how do we see like this, this really just took a life of its own, especially in the past couple of years of, you know, race issues and gender issues and, you know, certain types of class issues, things like that. I mean, well, how did this, how did this kind of get, you know, exported out to the suburbs there? And you did see, I think we still see this kind of, um, I think you see it on both ends, but you have, you know, the very extreme left or very, you know, big kind of progressive folks, which um, there's some nice people that are progressive, of course, but you know, they, they have a lot of big ideas and things like that. And that's not always in agreement with kind of your like, you know, moderate liberal that's like, yeah, maybe that's too far. And I think you have a version of that, an ugly version of that on the right as well. But how do we see in these issues of, you know, culture war uh, topics where even people on the same kind of side of the spectrum are not always aligned with these types of things. Right. And that's a great question. I think, again, Evanston does become a great place to consider Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. because on the one hand um, you have a place that, you know, if you are to read um, some more right wing uh, media, you know, like uh, the the Breitbart or kind of some of those places like Evanston is kind of a a common place that they come back to and say, look what the crazy progressives are doing. Look what the crazy liberals are doing. (laughs) Right. This right, is what right. will come to your town, too, if we support. It's like an example or an exemplar of, right. like, you know, um, yeah. uh, kind of left-wing politics kind of muck. But when you actually spend time there, you realize, like, kind of understands the oversimplification from afar. But within, you see, it's like there's some pretty um, profound kind of factions and fissures mm-hmm. within them. And so for me, the moment that really crystallized it in the reporting, where, again, this is all people who would be kind of left of center, but varying degrees of left. And those differences just within the left become very, you know, poignant. And so uh, I think it was 2017, this researcher comes to Evanston to give a talk. And he says, you know, he's done this massive national uh, study of uh, achievement gaps and test scores um, based on income and racial gaps in the community. Hmm. And so he basically tells Evanston, you have the biggest achievement gap in the country. And it's not because black and brown kids are doing so poorly. It's because white kids here do better than kids anywhere else in the country. Hmm. And so um, that becomes a Rorschach test. So, you know, kind of what, you know, I describe in the book is kind of the more liberal um, kind of community within Evanston sees like, okay, well, there's something that must be happening here before kids get to school. If these gaps are starting so early, there's, you know, something they're not getting the reading instruction or the language opportunities or socialization at home. So we need to invest in early childhood. Mm. And that's Mm. like, you know, an established and, you know, kind of uh, there's quite a bit of empirical evidence in support of that. But what you see kind of on the progressive side, particularly younger progressives of color in Evanston, 
is they say, no, hold on. If you actually look at what happens once kids get in Evanston, even kids from the same economic backgrounds, but different races, those gaps still appear and they don't mm-hmm. ever get closed in the school system. And the school board chair who talked about mourning what was lost, she said something that, again, it like really stuck with me. She said, if, if we had this same conversation in this community and you said our girls are four grades ahead of our boys, um, the conversation in the community would not be, look how great uh, our boys are four years ahead of our girls. The conversation mm-hmm. wouldn't be, look how great our boys are doing. It's how do we change this to get girls um, where you know, they should be in the first place. But we're not having that kind of same conversation around race. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's I mean, on one hand, it's a nice thing because it's like, okay, you should be having those debates, right? Like debates about, um, you know, education, about advancements, you know, how do we want to do things? That's good. That's a healthy debate. I think it becomes really charged when people get, you know, really animated about, you know, it's, you know, my way or the highway, or they get really sensationalized and then, you know, you throw some top spin on it with, with, you know, <laughs> social media and things like that. Um, you know, that's where it kind of goes wrong. But I think that that's something that I think that, you know, this is why it's good to talk to people that, you know, either aren't from the United States or, or just really aren't clued in is when you try to explain to people this, like that just don't understand it. It's like, wow, that's, that's, I wouldn't get that from like media or something like that. It's like, yeah, like, Liberals and progressives are pretty different, just like, you know, MAGA and rhinos are different, right? <laughs> right? Like, it's just different. It's just there's there's some overlap with worldview, but not not entirely, not not entirely and not in not in, I think a lot of times in, in practice, I think is, is, is where it breaks down the most. It's like, I'm kind of OK with this, but like. Yeah, like climate change is important to me, but like I'm going to fly on planes though. Maybe I'm going to try and limit it or I can try to do that, but like I'm going to fly on planes or I'm going to, you know, still use straws, you know, or whatever. Like, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, but I'm also going to, you know, contribute here or I'm going to buy a Prius or, you know, like it's, and some people are just like, you know, you have to go all the way. Like don't buy any clothes that are, you have to make your own clothes. Like, you know, <laughs> and it's just like, Yes, you can care about things, but you don't have to care about things at an 11. Maybe I care about it at like a six or seven. Hmm. And like, you know, and that's not good enough for people sometimes. Like it's just like, no, you got to agree with it at 11 or you don't care. And you're a horrible person if you don't. It's just like, ah, that's yeah. not going to be very helpful. <laughs> and, you know, you, you said something earlier about kind of there being, you know, kind of a lot of good people in schools. And I think, you know, that is certainly mm-hmm. true and it applies to parents and families too. And so, you know, what I kind of, part of what I walked away from this book with and what was so, what kind of kind of struck a chord so deep within me was the sense of like, these are all people who are bringing and families who are bringing a lot of gifts to the world. You know, they're kind, yeah. they have resources, Absolutely. they have strong social networks, they have these deep faith foundations. Um, they love their kids. They, you know, see themselves as part of a larger community in some form or fashion. Like these are families that, you know, like they bring a lot. And mm-hmm. so then the kind of the question becomes like, if the, the, the systems and the communities that we've built that kind of aren't able to receive and recognize that, then, yeah. you know, that's the place where we have to kind of like really start thinking about, okay, how do we remodel and refashion things? Um, but it's hard to do that and uh, kind of as you go. And so like Compton becomes such a, a powerful place for me in this, because on one hand, you know, you see this kind of like return to this multiracial, multi-ethnic kind of collaboration around trying to invest in, you know, the, the kids who are in Compton now. But one of the reasons that's actually possible is because there are no white families in Compton Unified School District anymore. 
And so that kind of avenue of conflict um, gets removed and, you know, it creates a whole lot of problems, but then over time it kind of opens up some new possibilities as well. Mm, yeah, 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 I, I agree. So two, two kind of final questions here. So you kind of end the book uh, as we were kind of alluding to earlier of, Oh, it's kind of, it's a little bleak. Um, you know, like most people know, right. Um, Trump presidency for a lot of people, uh, was divisive. And for a lot of people, um, you know, they really kind of, you know, went one way with it, went another way with it. And, you know, people definitely have strong opinions about, uh, Trump and his administration. There's no like, eh, it's kind of okay. People, <laughs> people are usually pretty strong about him one way or the other. Um, and then you have on top of that, um, the pandemic, I mean, which was <sighs> complicated. Uh, not only was it a health issue, but it was also a personal liberties issue. It was a vaccine issue. It was a, uh, economic issue. It became like all these things rolled into one. And, um, I still think we get a C minus on how we handle it as a country, but you know, that's another thing to talk about one day. But, um, how did this, all these things kind of, I mean, I, I know people personally, it kind of broke them. Yeah. Both kind of one of these things or both of these things at the same time, whichever way you want to slice it, it just kind of broke them. Um, it was a lot. I think it was a lot for people collectively, I guess. How do we, how do we, um, you know, and there was obviously the racial stuff that went on summer 2020 and the kind of rebound of that, all these things. How did this kind of, you talk about in the book, really, I mean, really directly impact people in these kind of suburban neighborhoods and communities and things like that. This wasn't just something happening out there all of a sudden. Now it was like in my school or it was in my neighborhood or I can't do this or I can't do that. How did, how do you think it, we know how it played out kind of nationally, I guess, but how did it kind of these things play out? Uh, a lot of anger, a lot of mistrust, a lot of all these things. How did it play out, I guess, in the suburbs? You know, I think part of what becomes you know, just so interesting with this is like, you know, we, we don't know how, how this is going to unfold. But if we yeah. project ourselves into the future and kind of try and look back on this era, like I think there's a lot of reason to believe that we're going to like history will tell us that this is like we're at the beginning of this kind of like there was the civil rights era. There was the industrialization era. Like there's this kind of constellation mm -hmm. of things that are radically transforming the underpinnings of our society right now. And we're going to like 2016, 2020 were really kind of two you know, uh, formative events in that. So I think, you know, we may, when I'm old and gray and I'm talking with my children about this, like, I feel like there's a good chance we'll be talking about 2020 in the same way my parents' generation talked about 1968. You know, like there's those parallels. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. And so, I think so too. part of what happened is like is stepping back um, and to be able to say, okay, if we're kind of at this moment in history, um, what does that mean for our lives? And again, we have these families, um, you know, and putting myself in there too, of like, you know, well-intentioned families who are basically good people who bring a lot to the world, who want the world to be a better place. And nothing that we do is going to, no individual choice is so right or so wrong that it's going to kind of fundamentally alter the course of this unraveling that's happening. Like, mm. um, we're just going to have to figure out how to be in relationship with it and how to try and manage it. Um, but that's not how Americans are used to thinking. You know, we no, really, um, we like to control the future and impose our vision on the, on the world. And, um, it's going to be interesting to see if we're uh, able to adapt that and retrofit it to the circumstances we're in. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's 2024. I love politics, uh, even if other people don't. And uh, regardless, it is going to be a very interesting uh, election year uh, here in the United States of, of, 
of of uh, which which uh, which uh, older president we choose. Uh, so, <laughs> the last question I have for you is, you know, in the book earlier in the book, you talked about this kind of mm, almost like a, this thing is in your hometown of this like Ponzi scheme of mass suburbanization, right? This illusion of wealth. Yes, you have wealth. You own a house, which is true. I mean, owning a house is a big, the biggest, most common form of, of of wealth in the in the in the United States for average Americans. But you know these new new build outs, things like that. But then there becomes lack of repair. There becomes higher taxes. There comes all these issues with it that people aren't really kind of told up front. And in a lot of ways, if you're uh, somebody that's from a different background, or you're from a you know person of color and and you, you you don't come from money. You don't have a silver spoon in your mouth and all these things. Uh, that can be kind of jarring of sorts. It's like, hey, I, I, I've seen those movies too, right? Like suburbs, you know, the white picket fence. You have a house. You you, you know, you do your whole thing. Kids go to school. Kids ride their bikes in the neighborhood, whatever. That's not always what's happening. Instead, I'm getting all of these economic issues. There's all this nonsense at schools. This isn't how I, I mean, I'm, I'm more stressed now. Like I, it wasn't as stressful in this in some ways. And, and there's tension in some ways. And again, that's not to paint a picture that all suburbs are, you know, you know, high stress, but I mean, it, there is, there is issues and it goes to this whole point of the book, which is this whole idea of there seems to be a, a, a disillusionment of suburban living as we become more diverse. And I'm not going to say it's because of that, but maybe you say otherwise, um, so what is our, how do we, how do, what does suburban life look like in the future or how could it look like? How do we kind of peel away from this disillusionment and have a little bit more, uh, you know, of, of, of a potential good future that people could kind of, you know, aspire to if that's what they want? That's yeah, a, it's a great question. And I think, you know, again, that, you know, the, the disillusionment that is the core of the book and, and generated the title, like, I think it's important just to sit with that for a second. And certainly it was the case for me. You know, again, I had been covering it mm-hmm. in the schools for 15 years. And I don't think I fully mm-hmm. registered, um, A, the kind of like scale and scope and emotional significance of what was happening in the suburbs, but just how pervasive the stories were about, I thought I was getting one thing, and then they started trying to send my kid to the discipline school. I thought yeah. I was kind of moving back into a safe place, and then my kid is getting called slurs on the playground, where the teachers mm-hmm. won't meet with me, or 27 yeah. other things that are these common recurring, recurring problems. And so that happening, not just in one community. Um, geographically or, you know, racially, economically, but in uh, across communities uh, and across populations, like kind of all at the same time, um, like that is really, really profound. And so I think part of our work here, um, us being, you know, media and journalists and folks who talk about it, um, us in my case being white people, you know, I think part of it is sitting in, in, and actually listening to those stories and hearing their emotional significance and their political significance. Um, and then, you know, from there, I think, you know, we are going to be forced to kind of like work these things out. And I think, you know, at this kind of conflict between worldviews um, and kind of values and priorities, like it's important to have a spaces where we can kind of talk about it at that level. Um, yeah. Because if we're only kind of doing these proxy wars on like, you know, um, CRT or, you know, whatever it may be, mm-hmm, it's just it's, mm-hmm. it's it's not constructive for anybody. And mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. being able to kind of um, have spaces where we can have these stories and competing kind of. Um, lives and, and dreams kind of side by side to consider. Like that's hopefully what I did a little bit with the book is create a space where we can kind of consider them together because I think we're going to have to find ways to do more of that. Mm. Yeah, this is perfectly said. I, I fully agree with everything you said there. 
the book is Disillusioned, Five Families in the Unraveling of America's Suburbs. Uh, it is out through Penguin. Everyone can go and pick it up and, uh, and see you on, uh, on a book tour in a, in, a, in a city near you or wherever you're going to be at. Um, Benjamin, this was such a wonderful, wonderful treat. Big, big delight having you on. I, um, I, I, I really, really enjoyed our conversation and really talking about something that doesn't get talked about as much and what you're doing with the book and your reporting. So I am, I'm very, very grateful for you coming on and, uh, and talking about all these things. Well, thanks for having me and thanks for the great conversation. Really enjoyed talking. Absolutely.